Sound Words, Christian Magazine, republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded podcast. Fifth article, an outline of the epistle to the Ephesians. The substances of Bible readings held at Thropton with W.M. C. Reed. Ephesians chapter 6. Following the divine instructions for husband and wife, and the precious revelation of the truth of the relation of the church to Christ. Comes the exhortations to children and fathers. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord because it is the right thing to do, parental authority having been ordained of God from the beginning and commanded in the law. Obedience in the Lord supposes that no command from the parents is contrary to the Lord's will, but is rather the expression of his will for the child. We live in a day when honor to parents is not the rule in the world. And such a state emphasizes the privilege belonging to the children of Christian households of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in showing the honor becoming to parents. Under the law, a promise of well-being and long life accompanied this commandment, how much greater then will be the divine blessing, under grace, for those who obey. Fathers are to be watchful lest they provoke their children to anger. Much harm has been done to children by overbearing fathers enforcing their own wills and not the Lord's, and by rash and harsh judgments. Children require careful and prayerful handling, which casts the parents upon the Lord, that his discipline and admonition, with its wisdom, grace, and kindness might be ministered to them. Under the conditions prevailing, when the epistle was written, the injunctions to bondmen and masters would belong, in the main, to the home circle. Because of the changed social conditions today these instructions largely belong to the business circle. As in the previous relationships considered the subject vessel is first addressed, and obedience commanded. The wisdom of such a command must be evident to anyone with the knowledge of the truth, or with experience in the world. Through disobedience man fell from his position and state of innocency and blessing in Eden, his blessedness in the garden depended upon simple obedience to God's word. Which indeed is the first principle of blessing for the creature at all times. Under law obedience was demanded, but man proved himself incapable of keeping the law, under grace the gospel is presented for the obedience of faith, which God provides. And the commandments of God for the Christian are the delight of the nature derived from God. Human relationships cannot possibly subsist in harmony if the subject vessel is not obedient. And the Christian servant is to obey with fear and trembling lest in anything by manifesting the spirit of disobedience he brings dishonor upon the name of the Lord. Simplicity of heart in obedient service bespeaks undivided purpose of heart in serving under the eye of Christ. The man of the world works better when his master's eye is upon him and upon service readily seen, but the Christian, doing the will of God serves as well in the master's absence and in things unseen. Such service is from the soul, wrought ungrudgingly with goodwill as to the Lord, his heavenly master, and not as unto men. Although the earthly master may not reward the good and diligent service rendered, the Lord will richly recompense the most menial task performed under his all-seeing eye. What an incentive this is to labor heartily in the ordinary duties of life. Here we read, whatever good each shall do, this he shall receive of the Lord. In Colossians the truth is complementary. He that does a wrong shall receive the wrong he has done. It may be said that these injunctions were for slaves, and while this is true, the spirit of what is enjoined should surely characterize every believing servant. Masters are to realize that the heavenly master of their servants is their master too, and their conduct should be ordered accordingly. If the Lord is going to repay good with good, they ought to do the same, for it is surely the privilege of the saint of God to follow in the steps of his Lord and Master. 
nor should threats be used, for these are usually made in temper, and if not carried out authority is weakened. If threats are carried out to maintain authority, it is often to the hurt of both master and servant, so that it is better to maintain discipline by wiser methods than with threats. God has no respect for persons, so that whatever our position, whether master or servant, we are to keep this ever in mind. The man who heeds these exhortations will be the best master or the best servant. We have been considering the features of the new man manifested in the public testimony, where the saint's relations with his neighbor are prominent, in the home circle, and in the business circle. Now we are about to consider how the features of the new man are connected with the conflict into which we have been brought. If such is the order in which the truth is presented by the Holy Spirit, does it not suggest that we must be right in our relations in each of these circles before we can be found in the conflict according to God's will? A man who is not right with his brethren, his wife, his master or servants, because of his faults, cannot have the armor properly fitted. The new man is created in righteousness and holiness of truth, and righteousness and truth are parts of the divine armor. If practical righteousness is not manifested in the different circles in which God has placed us, and our conduct is not according to truth, the enemy will readily overcome us. Is it not in these circles that the armor of God is fitted, and we prepare ourselves for spiritual conflict? Finally brethren, indicates that what we have considered leads to this climax, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Of ourselves we are no match for the enemy, but the Lord has met and overcome him. And if we are strong in him our very weakness will but make way for the only power that can defeat him. The might of his strength has been displayed in his going down into the domain of the enemy, in overcoming him, and in leading captivity captive. We have to meet a foe whose power has been broken, but who seeks to overcome us with his wiles. In the strength of him who defeated the enemy, and with the whole armor of God on, we need not fear the foe. When Joshua met the man who was going to bring down Jericho, he learned that he was the captain of the Lord's host, and so long as Joshua and Israel relied on him they defeated the enemy. Relying on themselves they fell an easy prey to a few men from Ai, and to the wiles of the Gibeonites. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood so that natural weapons will avail nothing, our foes are principalities and authorities, the universal lords of darkness, the spiritual power of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here are unveiled the great forces of evil that influence this world in its hateful opposition to all that is of God, powerful spiritual beings, wielding mighty diabolical influence over the minds and hearts of men. These have immense spheres of spiritual authority which have become alienated from God in their fall, authority used to oppose God and to thwart his designs for the blessing of men. From their heavenly spheres of rule they bring the darkening influence to bear on men whose hearts are filled with hatred against God, who become their willing instruments for opposition to God's testimony. Such is the moral darkness in which man is found, his mind blinded in willful ignorance of God, the prey to wicked spirits, and pursuing a course that leads to eternal ruin. In the conflict this dreadful array of evil is against us. We meet the wicked spirits as we seek to enter into God's presence for communion with him regarding the rich spiritual blessings he has given us in Christ in the heavenly places. We meet their human agents down here in seeking to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. If we compared the opposition of the forces of evil with our weakness we might well be dismayed, but in the presence of the Lord and the power of his might the great giants disappear. Against such foes we must have the panoply of God if we are to withstand in the evil day in which our lot is cast, a day that will last till the conflict is over. First we must withstand the assault of the enemy, then there are the things to accomplish in the conflict for God.
and having done all we are to stand in possession of what we have secured in the conflict. Like Shammah, one of David's mighty men, who stood in the midst of a plot of lentils and delivered it out of the enemy's hand. Shammah withstood the enemy, secured the plot, part of God's inheritance given to his people, and stood there in possession. There is no opportunity in this warfare for putting off our armor, our foes are wily and vigilant. If we are definitely set for the Lord's interests, the enemy will soon make his presence felt, and if we overcome him in the Lord's strength, we should watch against his seeking to regain from us the ground he has been forced to relinquish, or perhaps something else that we have held for God. Is it not through lack of watchfulness that we so often and so sadly fail? Flushed with success, there is the danger of endeavouring to stand in our own strength in the ground taken from the foe in the strength of the Lord, and thus expose ourselves to one for whom we are no match in ourselves. Standing is therefore the great thing for us, but we can only stand if we are properly equipped by God. Now we have the parts of the panoply of God, in which we are to stand in the conflict. First of all the loins are to be girt about with truth, truth in the inward parts will regulate our whole course, and enable us to carry out God's will. Every inward spring of the moral being contributes to express what we really are, and unless all our desires, thoughts, and feelings, are affected by truth, yea protected by truth, the enemy will get a point for attack. And we cannot stand for God if we have wrong thoughts of God, or wrong feelings about him, or if selfish desires and wrong motives control the life. Truth in the inward parts comes through communion with God, by feeding upon the word, which in communion the spirit forms in us, giving that moral state which protects against the attacks of the enemy. The heart is the center of the moral being, and it becomes us to be guarded against anything that would lower the moral tone of the life, which so largely depends on the condition of the seat of the affections. Righteousness is to be our breastplate, protecting the heart as regards the conscience, for we must be right in our relations with God and with men to maintain a good conscience. If we would stand in the presence of the foe, Paul exercised himself to have a good conscience without offense in everything towards God and men, which surely means he always sought to have the breast protected with the breastplate of righteousness. A man with a bad conscience is of no use for meeting the enemy, for the enemy can readily engage such with his own failure and easily overthrow one whose heart condemns him. Will a man with a bad conscience seek to possess the portion in the heavenly places that God has given him in Christ, or endeavor to maintain the height of the calling wherewith God has called us? How very important it is therefore to allow nothing in the life that will affect the conscience, and so allow the enemy an unguarded spot for his fiery darts of wisdom, it was written of old, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. This is the path for the Christian. Peace is to mark all his steps in the shoes brought to him by the gospel. The gospel not only brings good news of peace made by the blood of the cross, and of peace with God for those who are justified by faith, but exhorts us, if possible, to follow peace with all men. What a contrast this is to the ways of men naturally, of whom it is recorded, the way of peace they have not known. How very often the word peace appears in the epistles. One of the marks of the kingdom of God is peace we have been called to peace in one body, and we are to seek peace and ensue it. Will a quarrelsome Christian, engaged in fleshly contentions, be able to meet the subtle foe? His fleshly contentions are no match for the enemy, and the state of heart of such a disposition leaves room for the inflamed darts of the wicked one. In Christianity nothing is to be done in the spirit of strife, but in the spirit of him who was meek and lowly, whose every step was peace. 
The shield of faith brings God into every circumstance of life, and this defeats the purpose of Satan, who seeks to bring distrust of God into the heart as he did with Adam and Eve in the beginning. Could we possibly participate successfully in the conflict connected with God's will for our blessing without absolute confidence in God? Unflinching confidence in the might of Christ's strength and in the goodness of God will quench every inflamed dart the enemy can produce. Faith relies on Christ who has already met and defeated the foe, bring him in, and every wicked suggestion of the enemy is dispelled. When the spies brought to Israel the report of the land, of which they said, Surely it floweth with milk and honey, they said also, We are not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger than we. They had not taken the shield of faith they forgot God, they were not strong in the Lord and the power of his might. But Joshua and Caleb were men of another sort, they had the shield of faith, and quenched the inflamed darts of the wicked one, saying, If Jehovah delight in us, he will bring us into this land. And give it us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Protected by the helmet of salvation, the thoughts are engaged with what God has accomplished for us and will yet accomplish. The mind has a very important place in divine things, and has to be guarded against the enemy. In the quiet confidence and consciousness that the issue of the conflict is with God, we can lift up the head in the presence of all evil, knowing that God has already given us part with Christ. He has blessed us in Christ, and soon will bring us home to heaven to be with him and like him forever. Yet our helmet here is not the hope of salvation, it is the enjoyment of a salvation presently known, for even that which is in prospect is ours in spirit now. Ephesians presents God's counsels, and our blessings according to those counsels, as established in Christ already seated in the heavenly places. So that in chapter 2 where it twice says, ye are saved by grace, it observes between these two mentions, he, has raised us up together. And made us sit down together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. What a salvation to engage the mind, our place is even now in Christ in the heavenly places. Thus engaged in mind, our thoughts are protected from the evil one, and we can go forward to occupy the divine ground for the glory of God and our own spiritual enrichment. God's word is the sword of the spirit, a weapon against which Satan has no defense. See how the Lord Jesus used this mighty sword when Satan confronted him in the wilderness. Thrice did he say, it is written, and the wicked one left him for a season. To use the sword of the Spirit, we must know the Scriptures, but there must also be the spiritual condition, through living communion with God to be able to use the sword aright. It is the Spirit's sword, therefore we must be under the Spirit's control to use it effectively. Satan sought to use the Scriptures against the Lord, he was not wielding the sword of the Spirit. We must therefore not assume that an answer from the Scriptures is always the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God is living, the application of the living Word is the sword of the Spirit. Lastly there is prayer, which is a very important part of God's panoply for us. Lack of confidence and dependence upon God will surely expose us to the watchful foe. In the wilderness the Lord met Satan with the word, the sword of the Spirit, in Gethsemane, being in conflict he prayed more earnestly. We are to use the word as the sword of the Spirit. And we are to pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, the conflict is spiritual. Praying at all times is to be cultivated, for we are to watch unto this very thing with all perseverance, and we are to persevere both as regards going to prayer and while engaged in prayer. For the enemy seeks to keep us from the presence of God even when we are bowing the knee. Prayers are not to be narrow, but to embrace all saints, the whole sphere of God's operations on earth will be remembered by those intelligent regarding the scope of God's testimony. 
Paul, because of the special ministry committed to him, had a claim on the prayers of the saints, and his work among the saints at Ephesus emphasized this claim, but how gracious of him to desire their prayers. That they might partake with him of the privileges belonging to the sphere of Christ's interests. The apostle especially requested their prayers that he might be given utterance to announce with boldness what lay upon his heart, the mystery of the gospel. This was Paul's unique ministry, he spoke of my gospel, for in his preaching there were revelations ministered only by him, preaching which presented the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Deeply embedded in the gospel preached by Paul is this great mystery, which was also his peculiar ministry, which disclosed the eternal secret of the heart of God in announcing rich, heavenly and eternal blessings for the church in closest union with Christ. On account of preaching this glorious truth, Paul, Christ's ambassador in this world, was bound with a chain. How very solemn for the world to treat thus the representative of the heavenly Christ, who held out to them nothing but divine blessing. Spite of his circumstances, the apostle wishes to be bold that he might speak becomingly of this wonderful theme. Knowing the concern of the saints for him, and desiring that they might be encouraged, Paul graciously sent Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, to tell them all about him and his concerns. He then seeks for them peace with love and faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On leaving his own, the Lord left them his peace, Paul would have the saints to enjoy this peace. All that we have is the sovereign gift of God, and comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The final word invokes grace on all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in incorruption, the grace that will enable us to enter into the wonderful revelations given in this epistle. And to answer to the exhortations for the expression of the heavenly light in every circumstance down here. W.M.C. Reed.